Welcome to the Positive Impact Podcast, where we dive into the world of movers, shakers, and changemakers, creating a positive impact on the world. This is your host, Alexandra Black Pollock, and together we're going to tackle real issues, discovering how we can make the world a better place. This episode of the Positive Impact Podcast is brought to you by HelloFresh, delicious, healthy, and fresh meals delivered straight to your door. Enjoy cooking again with scrumptious and easy to prepare meals three nights a week. Visit positiveimpactpodcast.com fresh for $40 off your first box. Today, I have the absolutely incredible opportunity to interview Bob Langer, the former vice president of corporate social responsibility and sustainability at McDonald's. During his 26 years with McDonald's, he was able to make his way from overseeing truck drivers to spearheading social change every single day. Not only did he have the opportunity to work with partners like Greenpeace and Dr. Temple Grandin, but also to create real meaningful change. Bob, thank you so much for joining me today. So glad to be with you. Let's dive into that. How do you make the transition from overseeing truck drivers and moving your way through the company to spearheading social good? Well, you know, back back when I started to work on the environment and sustainability for McDonald's, that was 1988 when I was in charge of truck drivers. It was just really uh, luck. I mean, there wasn't even this type of discipline or idea of like younger people getting involved in corporate responsibility. There wasn't such a thing back then. And uh, I just lucked out. The, uh, the truck driving organization was also in charge of packaging for McDonald's. And uh, I had helped open up a distribution center in Wisconsin. I came back to my normal job. It was not available to me. So basically, they gave me a temporary job to figure out how to recycle the polystyrene clamshell, if you remember that, because we got rid of it a few years later, uh, and to phase out of chlorofluorocarbons in our packaging. I knew nothing about any of that stuff at all. And as soon as I got involved with it, it was like uh, nirvana. It was like a, uh, a calling. I realized that the work that I was doing before was not meaningful. I, di- I actually didn't know it wasn't meaningful until I started to work on meaningful work. And so once I started to do this, I, this is what I was meant to do. And if you look at the environmental sustainability movement, it sort of started back in the late 80s. So I feel like I was lucky to get involved in McDonald's at the ground floor, but also in society getting involved in the, in the, in the ground floor. So I, I just feel very blessed, very fortunate that without any study for this, uh, I kind of lucked into it. Although I would say as a kid growing up, this was my vision of the world. I, everything I did when I was growing up was I was taught to make a difference in the world. My parents taught me that. Everything I read was to do that. I grew up in the 60s. You know, uh, social activism was the norm. So I definitely wanted to make a difference, but not not until I got lucky did I was I able to make that happen. Well, also talk about capitalizing on a great opportunity. So there's definitely some credit that you do deserve there. I love this idea that you talked about getting in on the ground floor. And so now corporate responsibility is a real term. But back then it was kind of just an idea. Can you kind of dive into what that term means today and maybe the evolution of it? It's really gone through a fantastic evolution from companies perhaps trying to do the the right thing to now companies realizing that it's part of their success as a company and growing and being relevant and increasing their profitability. So that's what I've noticed both in my own journey through McDonald's, but also all the peers that I worked with. And it's a, it's a wonderful evolution from uh, looking at doing the right thing is a good thing. However, in a company, doing the right thing is not always the daily thought. You're running a business. People are dedicated to making things happen in McDonald's or any company. Uh, and you need people in the company that have that outside perspective that can bring in societal issues and find the impact between what's important for society and what's important for business. And the big thing that's happened in the last five to seven years in this movement that we're in is that now people are looking at in business 
in general, the leading companies are, that this is actually driving top line, bottom line performance for companies. And that's how I led things at McDonald's and that's how I tried to uh, evolve it at McDonald's. And, and uh, my favorite way of saying it at McDonald's is that we're going to grow our business by making a positive difference in society. And uh, that sounds like a simple thought, but I would open up and close every talk I gave with Tim McDonald's with that short phrase, because that's what I believe in, that there is shared value, that in doing good uh, for what's important in society can and should be a growth driver for the company. Driving growth and pursuing positive change at the same time are really deep. But before I, even before you're able to do that, you touched on the idea of bringing these outside perspective and a lot of maybe empathy for these different issues. So in a company as big as McDonald's, how do you cultivate that desire to have those outside issues? How do you find people with that mentality to actually spur growth? I consider this question of yours to be my number one job at McDonald's. Sort of, you know, I had a lot of, like a few number ones. But, uh, you know, there's no way that a person like me can know everything about all these different issues, you know, from food technology and GMOs and antibiotics and animal welfare and climate change. So, you know, my job was to find those people that not only were experts, but had a lot of credibility and people that our company leaders would believe in. So uh, I'll give you an example. You know, we want to make changes in animal welfare. We're really struggling. You know, hey, we, we buy a lot of meat. We have a lot of influence with suppliers. Uh, it was not until we met up with Dr. Temple Grandin, who is just one of the most terrific people in the world, a renowned animal scientist. She has autism as well. She is so highly respected by all. We brought her into McDonald's, matched her up with our suppliers. And it's amazing the magic that happens. When a, a company is dedicated to kind of doing the right thing, you, you work with a partner like Temple Grandin, like the Environmental Defense Fund. We can get into that if you like when we work with them on packaging. And, you know, it's amazing when you go into suppliers with an expert on your side like Dr. Temple Grandin and have your suppliers be partners in making animal welfare improvements. So, uh, you know, my job was to bring these societal issues into the company best through experts that our company people would actually respect and listen to. And that is a uh, interesting task. And there are many of those experts out there. You know, a, a lot of uh, stereotypes of uh, NGOs are, oh, they're all kind of, a lot of our suppliers think that all these NGOs are, are crazy uh, and radicals because some of the radicals get all the attention when you read the daily papers, right? But you know what? Almost all the NGOs are so good. They're so uh, well-meaning. Many of them have the open-mindedness to work with companies because they realize that, that through companies they can make big change. And they're willing to listen and uh, you know, work with market-level forces to make things happen. That touches on a big point because a lot of the information on any issue isn't necessarily correct. Yeah, that's you, for sure. <laughs> and especially going into the environmental issues and there's a spectrum and also people who are willing to work with you and people who might not be willing to concede and grow with you. How did you navigate that space and find your ideal partners who were committed both to mindful of the bottom line for McDonald's and how they are a business, but yet willing to work with you and give you the right accurate information as you went through these issues, like you said, a lot of times you didn't know about? Well, first of all, you're right about the, the science of all these issues. The science of all these issues is very, very complicated. Uh, I used to think that science was black and white. Science is not black and white. It's very interpretive. Uh, and you're right. You know, we, we would have to go through the screen of uh, trying to understand who we could work with. I had an invisible scorecard that I, that I developed for partners. And, you know, I would kind of grade it. And uh, top of the scorecard would be, did they have a lot of scientists on their staff versus lawyers? You know, I didn't want to work oh. with, you know. And then, you know, I would have a, an invisible scorecard on a scale of zero to ten, how business friendly they were and how activist they were. So if they're super business friendly, they're zero or one or two or three. If they're an activist group, 
of an extreme nature, you know, you could name, name your own group, that would be a 10. Perhaps those are groups that work even outside the law and without the legal structure. I would always aim, guess where what I would try to aim in that scale of zero to 10? I'm going to take a guess somewhere in the middle, but... Middle top, I would, I would shoot for six, seven, eight. Because, you know, I didn't want to work with business-friendly organizations that were just strictly business-friendly because they don't have the credibility. They, they would have the image of being uh, bought out by business. Uh, on the other hand, I didn't want to work with extreme organizations that didn't have a sensitivity to a, a business. So I looked for those six, seven, eight organizations that had good science, were very independent, so that a person like you would say, hey, McDonald's is working with Dr. Temple Grandin. She is credible. They're working with the Environmental Defense Fund. They don't take one penny from companies. So they're not tainted by companies. So when they, when the Environmental Defense Fund says that, hey, McDonald's is doing a good job on packaging and recycling, they're going to believe them. Uh, so those are the type of organizations that, you know, kind of the screens that we would go through on picking who could work with us. I love the scorecard that you had and that you're both very mindful about perception and authenticity that you were gonna get from the organization. Going back to this idea of corporate responsibility, are there different misconceptions that you run into a lot when talking to people about it? I tell you, it begins with the language of corporate responsibility and sustainability. I admit that it's a really lousy language. Most people don't understand it. You know, I would try to explain what I would do to friends and neighbors, and it's not an easy thing to describe what you do because it still is not in the common vernacular of, of, of like in financial performance, everybody knows in accounting and finance all the terms. Sustainability, there's a lot of jargon and a lot of jargon that people do not understand, uh, which leads to misunderstanding, which is the nature of your, your question. And I think a lot of people think that all this stuff is a uh, do-good effort alone, you know, which I, I think is a really bad stereotype. You know, businesses are not going to work on things in this field unless they are good for their business. Uh, I think another stereotype is that businesses really don't care that this is all a PR effort. Uh, and that couldn't be farther for the truth because one of the biggest problems we have with the sustainability movement is that consumers really are not really all that engaged yet, to be honest with you. I, I wish they were. Uh, but the, at the end of the day, the day has not arrived, at least in the United States, where people are voting with their wallets for the most part. And I think the last stereotype that probably uh, bothers many of us in the movement is that people and companies are, uh, you know, are, are out just for selfish uh, reasons. And, and uh, that big companies, I work for a big company, a big brand, didn't I, McDonald's. Uh, I'm proud of my company. I, I love the company. I love the ethics of it and the people. And to see us painted in a bad picture as people that don't care as an organization that is, uh, you know, evil. It, 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 you know, it's just, it doesn't work. It's not McDonald's I know or the companies that I know that are out there. I think that's a great transitioning point to actually talk about some of the good and the tactical changes that you were able to make. So today, McDonald's has this mission titled Our Journey Together for Good. And it touches on five key areas, which are food, sourcing, people, community, and planet. And while this is actually kind of a new campaign or mission statement, if you will, this is actually stuff that you've been boots on the ground since the 90s working on. What I was hoping to do was to touch on food, sourcing, and planet, and really talk to the different times that you were able to make accomplishments. And let's start going back to the 90s and how you were able to kind of address what I would classify as measures that were good for the planet. Well, you know, planet uh, for us is mostly about uh, the use of energy and, and packaging and, and waste. So we, uh, we, we've set a goal to reduce waste by 50% at McDonald's by 2020 and reduce energy by 20%. Now, let me put that in context of why that's so good for business. Uh, believe it or not, McDonald's energy bill, its global energy bill is $1 billion, with a B, dollars a year. Ooh. We, I'm sorry, actually, I misspoke. It's $2 billion a year. <laughs> wow, that was, that was it, it's one, a big it's difference. One billion, yeah, well, it's $1 billion for the United States, $2 billion for the globe. 
we project that the energy bill for McDonald's system in 2020 is going to be five billion. Ouch. We feel we have the means, the technology, and the know-how to reduce energy by 20 percent. Do your math. That's pretty good savings for the company, isn't it? Also, our number one impact on climate change is our use of energy in our restaurants. We have 35,000 restaurants. We are one of the biggest users of energy when you aggregate all of our restaurants together. So this intersection that I call shared value, shared value, bringing value to society and value to the business, this is just a great example. We are addressing climate change, the most important environmental issue of our time, and we're helping our business become more efficient. You know, with waste, we've had an interesting journey on waste. You know, you mentioned the early 90s. You know, back in the, when I first started to cut my teeth on this in the late 80s, McDonald's was in the headlines all the time uh, for being representative of the disposable society. There was this famous garbage barge called Mobro that could not find a place to dump its garbage. And it was off the shores of New Jersey. And believe it or not, there was a big campaign against McDonald's in the late 80s that we were creating too much waste, that we're running out of landfills. And McDonald's was the lightning rod for this whole issue. And it was the first time the company, you have to understand in our history, we were never the poster child of something bad until the late 80s. You know, we were always like the golden child. Everybody loved us in the community. And all of a sudden, people don't like us for packaging and waste. We're becoming a symbol. So that was my first project that I worked on at McDonald's and you know, how to reduce waste. We ended up working with the Environmental Defense Fund, who earlier on I talked about that scorecard and all that. The Environmental Defense Fund is a phenomenal NGO. They are science-based. They, they're people. I have best friends that I consider now that work for them. They're just like, hey, I'm so proud to be with them and have them brought them into the company. And can you imagine people like myself and others in McDonald's walking kind of hand-in-hand hand into suppliers to ask them to reduce waste with the Environmental Defense Fund? It was just a – and back then, things like this were not done. It was a groundbreaking activity. These these partnerships now with NGOs are a little bit more common today, but we were breaking new ground back then. We ended up uh, creating a waste reduction plan. We reduced 300 million pounds of waste during the 90s. Ooh, that's huge. Through all these efforts to reduce, reuse, recycle, uh, just examples of that would be, you know, when we reduced the size of a napkin by an inch, for example, which we did, you know, we saved 10 million pounds of packaging. We changed our bags from bleached white paper to uh, brown paper, unbleached, you know, really good for the environment. And we made, you know, 100 changes like this that accumulated up to this 300 million pounds of waste. And by the way, uh, we really didn't spend one penny more for any of that, not one penny more. You know, most of the things you do to reduce packaging are bringing efficiencies or you're reducing. So we ended up being this company that was uh, perceived as being horrible and evil for the environment. Uh, and we went from the outhouse to the White House because we got a White House award in 1992 for our work with the Environmental Defense Fund. And uh, ever since then, I've been trying to create partnerships exactly like that, where we can partner work with our suppliers, and we're, we're covering the planet right now. But those are our two big, big uh, impacts that we still have, energy and waste packaging. You know, recycling is a, is a real tough issue in our business. Not sure if you have time to get into it, but just real briefly, you know, we're in food service. So whenever you serve food and packaging has food can, you know, remnants of it, you know, recyclers don't like food. So I would say that that's the number one challenge we have in the future is how to recycle or organically compost our, our packaging waste. But about 90% of our packaging is organic. So, you know, I, I have a vision that it can be kind of organically composted. But more to come, that's the, an issue for the future for us. I'm excited to see more creative and very innovative solutions to address that. Because you're right, that's a very unique challenge to kind of face. So that was Planet. I'd love to touch on this idea of sourcing. And once again, this is something that you guys is not a new area for you to be diving into. This is something that 
was one of your beginning phases. And so what changes and advancements have you made in the, in the world of sourcing? Well, first of all, the headline here is that I've always considered sourcing to be the, the very epicenter of where McDonald's can make the biggest impact. Again, you know, think of those 35,000 restaurants. Think of the $35 billion we spend on food and packaging. And think of the suppliers that we work with, that when we make a change, it's transformative. So I described to you the supply chain impacts with packaging, right? Yeah. So when we made all those changes, by the way, they ended up not just being from McDonald's. Because, you know, we buy from suppliers that have to do all these things for others as well. So all these changes really change the face of packaging for everybody. And that's the joy of working in supply chain is the scale and transformation that can happen. I briefly uh, touched upon the work with uh, Dr. Temple Grandin, but I would say that this is one of my most proudest things that I did. Uh, hey, I was a city boy. <laughs> I knew nothing about animals. And then I'm given this task in 19, uh, what year was it? 1997 to, my boss said, create an animal welfare program because we're under a lot of pressure. We buy a lot of meat. You know, we need to have a position on this that could make a difference. We just happened to run into Dr. Temple Grandin, and it was like magic. She is so good. She is so expert. And we uh, took her animal welfare audit, and we asked our suppliers to come up with a way to make a difference. So after several years of working on implementing her audit system, you, you can't believe the amount of changes that have happened with better animal treatments within not only McDonald's meat suppliers, but all meat suppliers in the United States and globally. And I'll give you an example. So when I, I've never been to a slaughterhouse, you know, not until 1997 did I visit one with Temple Grandin. And I'm looking around and I see how the animals are being treated. And as an example, uh, there was heavy use of an electric prod. So they would have this short stick in their hands, the workers. And virtually every animal, in order to move them forward, they would give them an uh, electrical shock. I'm, I'm watching this thinking, this is not right. And Temple Grandin was abhorred by that. And she says, there's no reason to use these electric prods. Can you imagine being you know, prodded along? Not at all. And she said, we can move the animals by proper design of the uh, corrals. We could use uh, plastic bags. We can use other uh, devices that don't harm the animals. So it, all that changed. We eliminated that as an example. So if you were to go to a slaughterhouse today, you're like going to a library where the animals just kind of come in. They're very peaceful. They're treated well. And there's a, there's a whole different mindset. We've made animal welfare a standard operating procedure for our suppliers. So, you know, we... In, in McDonald's, you know, our impacts are on packaging. I described that, animals. And then we, we worked on the environment. And I'll give you an example there. You know, we've integrated sustainability as one of the core expectations of our suppliers. And it took us uh, quite a bit to do that. But it really is now standard operating procedure. It's part of their uh, performance review. Uh, and we expect high performance. And we've done it with fish. You know, McDonald's probably sells the most sustainable food products of any food service company in the United States. Now, that is a very surprising statistic for me, especially as a consumer. I would never associate that with McDonald's. I know, and that's why I say it. And sometimes I'm baffled as to why, again, I'm retired from McDonald's. Uh, and I would come up with all types of ideas within McDonald's to say that, hey, we can get this marketing, market this and communicate to the consumers. Uh, we just haven't gotten there yet. I'm convinced that the company will because people care. I mentioned earlier that they don't vote with their wallets yet because, you know, our research shows they care. And so in McDonald's, all of our fish is certified sustainable. You know, it's the, it's the very first project that we started to work on back in the, uh, around the year 2000 is uh, we're, we're running out of places to find fish for McDonald's, believe it or not. I mean, so there's a business need to have more sustainability. We work with a great expert. His name is Jim Cannon, another NGO that on my scale <laughs> is phenomenal. Look up Jim Scan uh, Cannon of Sustainable Fisheries Partnership. 
He created a scorecard for fish. McDonald's ended up shifting over half of its fish in order to have all of its fish be certified sustainable by the Marine Stewardship Council. So, hey, buy our fish, our coffee. All of our espresso-based coffee is Rainforest Alliance certified. Again, if you add those two items up, that's a lot of product right now, and, and there's going to be more to come because you mentioned our pillars of our journey together for good. Our vision for sourcing is that all of our food and packaging come from verified, sustainable sources. Think about that. That is deep. That is big. That is bold. I just got chills. That's a huge impact because, as you mentioned, you guys have 35,000 restaurants in 120 different countries throughout the world. That is not only incredible change, it's far-reaching. And it's, and it's mainstreaming uh, sustainability, and that's always been my mission. My mission then, now, and every day into the future you know, is what impact can I make through whatever I do to make sustainability mainstream? It isn't, it isn't mainstream yet, but if you got companies like McDonald's and Walmart and Procter and Gamble's of the world and the Unilever's, you know, more and more showing that they're doing this in everyday life, we're going to bring the everyday consumer in. That ripple effect, even just when you get a company as big as McDonald's saying we are dedicated to this is huge and it's almost a top down the corporations making a stand saying this is important and educating consumers and almost speeding up the process where we as consumers start voting with our wallet. Well, you're exactly right. You know, I mentioned earlier that consumers care. Uh, they really do. They trust companies like McDonald's and others to get in there and do what's right. And I'm convinced probably more punishing is done in history, you know, companies are punished for not doing good things. Sustainability should looked at, be looked at as an opportunity, not a, not a fear. Uh, and I, I, by the way, one of your pre previous questions was the evolution. To me, that's one of the biggest evolutions. I think a lot of sustainability was reactive before. It was crisis management. It's living out of fear. It's staying out of trouble. I would say that that's the old way. The new way is that's just a small piece of the puzzle. The bigger piece is this is all about opportunity. It's so frustrating that we really do punish corporations. And especially right now, corporations are so vilified and business in general, capitalism in general. But if you have this socially minded endeavors, corporations have the ability to leverage incredible change. What McDonald's was able to do with just the treatment of animals with Dr. Temple Grandin, me as just an individual who is passionate about that issue, I would have never been able to go in there and have that, I don't want to say bargaining chip, because it wasn't necessarily a bargaining chip, it was a partnership. But no one else is able to make that. So just this idea of punishing corporations, I think it really needs to be celebrating them when they do make those and kind of encouraging it. And then as consumers, we need to learn to vote with our wallets and we need to support that. <laughs> and we do, and we, we do, and that would be a dream come true uh, of us seeing that in my lifetime, hopefully your lifetime, you're much younger than me. But a lot of companies are afraid to go out there to toot their own horn because companies can be humble, number one, and it's not the natural thing to go out there and say, hey, we're a good company, look at us. Uh, and plus, you know, Everything we do doesn't maybe strike a chord with everybody because, you know, everybody has different values and judgments. And I'm much like you, though. Why don't we celebrate and reward those companies that are trying to get up the ladder to do good? And the more, the more good, the more you buy our fish and coffee that's sustainable, before you know it, we're going to do more because we're motivated by the consumer. I'm really glad that you circled back to this idea of sustainable both fish and coffee because especially as a consumer... I'm really grappling with the word sustainable, and I don't know what that means. I mean, I know that it's good, it's got this positive vibes, everything should be sustainable, but what does that even really mean? Well, that gets back to the jargon, isn't it? It takes a while to explain it. I was, you know, by the way, one of our big goals, uh, you talk about a big goal of ours, and I'm very proud that we're, that we're on this journey to buy sustainable beef starting in the year 2016. 
and a lot of people had asked us the same question, what does sustainable beef mean? And, you know, we announced this over a year ago because there wasn't a definition of it. So we stirred and catalyzed the debate to define it. Uh, and I had this, I was giving a speech to a bunch of ranchers a little while ago and I was at a table with a 12-year-old. And a 12-year-old asked me the same question. He goes, well, what does sustainable beef mean? And the best way I can describe it to him, the best way I can describe it to you is that every day, you know, when we are making sustainable beef happen or whatever product it is, the impacts on our planet, on people, and on animals are getting better, you know, by concrete measures. That's a broad answer. Uh, it's not the te technologies or processes, it's the actual measurable outcome that is so important. And I feel that activists and some NGOs out there are losing track of the finish line. They concentrate too much on the process. And the fact is, the mission is to improve the world. And by the way, uh, the buck stops at a company like McDonald's. Sustainability is not one-dimensional. Very important concept here. Most of the activists think one-dimensionally. I, I believe in animal welfare. Oh, no, I believe in human rights. Oh, I believe in ecology and protecting our environment. Oh, you know, I believe in, you know, uh, labor issues. They're, they're, you know, food safety, sanitation, nutrition, health. I just gave you a list of some very important issues, right? They, we had to deal with them all. And when you make a change, not every one of them scores high on all those criteria, but that's what we have to do. We have to make decisions that are best across all. Yes. Sustainability is not just for the environment. It is for people, planet, and economics. And we can't lose sight of that. There were two huge points that I just really want to drive home. First, if you don't have to, you shouldn't reinvent the wheel. It looks like you guys really leveraged other organizations that were already defining what sustainable was and said, let's use their metrics and just figure out how to integrate it into our company. And I love that because so many times, especially as social entrepreneurs, we look to recreate everything again. And we don't have to because we don't have the time, resources, or let's be honest, money to do that. But the other one that you was really huge was this idea of sustainable beef, a global roundtable. I mean, I can't even wrap my mind how clever that was because you brought everyone together, which means you're going to get more buy-in. You're going to create more progress. And you're not doing it alone. So you're kind of distributing the work, but leveraging everyone in the field to make a difference. And I would just add a, a third thought to that as I listen to your inspiring words is, you know, get it going. Get a start. You know, don't look for perfection. And then also, you're going to get criticism. It's just, I tell you, it's just part of the world. It kind of dumbfounds me sometimes that no matter what you do, you got people coming at you looking to rip you apart and tear you apart. You can't let these people that are naysayers and criticizers stop you. They're the squeaky wheel. Uh, I, you know, in general, I like to ignore the squeaky wheel. I don't think they should be controlling the debate. Let's look at the, the wheel that actually is on the ground making a difference. And the people that are making a difference, they don't go out there and, and shout to the world about what's happening. And I think that, I wish that would be reversed. I mean, there's this incredible saying, and if I could remember it fully right now, it'd be the perfect moment. But that if you're, basically it was if you're not getting criticized and if people aren't kind of opposing you, that you're not doing enough. <laughs> and so the only point that people won't criticize you is if you're not doing anything. And that's not a space either of us wants to be in. That's for sure. So you brought up a, great, a lot of great points about your ability to create change within an organization. And I want to dive into those next. But before we leave kind of those three areas, the food, sustainability, and planet, or sourcing, the food, sourcing, and planet, I do want to touch on how both food and sourcing help McDonald's bottom line. Because you've really emphasized that these changes have to be good for business. So can you touch on how those two elements are really good for McDonald's on the business side? Yeah, you know, I'll go into uh, the food element a little bit more uh, in our menu. You know, so, you know, we, we, uh, 
we're creating more and more choices at McDonald's that uh, people would say would be uh, healthier. Uh, so we're introducing uh, salads and fruits, you know, with with a Happy Meal, for example. Uh, we downsize the fry for the, the children and uh, people get uh, apples automatically or some other fruit. Now, we, di we didn't do this just to be good. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to react to the issue of uh, health and obesity and overweight. You know, all companies have a role in it, and we always felt that we should do what we can as well. But how can we address that issue and still have it be good for business? And so the way that we approached in our pillars, you know, we said we're going to sell, we're going to uh, double the amounts of fruits and vegetables we sell by 2020. And our business rationale behind it is that the average customer to McDonald's, uh, what do you think, the average customer, how many times do they come to us a month? Oh, that's a great question. Maybe three? Hey, you're pretty smart. Oh, most, yay! Most, pe most people say more than that. About two and a half. About two and a half times. So, hey, you know, that's pretty good. But can you imagine if they came three times a month? And so we, we looked at providing more balanced choices. And by the way, that's our vision for our menu is to provide more balanced choices that fit your needs and lifestyle. You know, notice that I didn't put in the word healthy. Healthy is such a, an interpretive word. But uh, it balance. And we feel that providing more fruits and vegetables it's good for you, of course, but you'll come more often. You'll come two and a half times, rather two and a half times, you'll come three times. For instance, today you could uh, buy a value meal now and substitute the fries with a salad. Hey, I love our fries, but the fact is I don't want to have fries with every meal, uh, even though they're wonderful. Especially not five times a month. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> That's a lot of fries. You guys' well, fries are has amazing. <laughs> choices to make, but yeah, I... I I would like to have fries, but then the next time I come in, order a salad. You have that ability to do that now. Uh, you know, so in supply chain, let me give you an example. We measure not only the environmental impacts. We have, an, a, we have a scorecard, by the way, with our major suppliers that they have to fill out and report to us every year to measure waste, energy, and water usage and the improvements on the environment and their bottom line. It's two pieces. Uh, last year in the U.S. business, the uh, amount of environmental savings were significant, but what I want to highlight is we've been saving an average of $35 million a year through these measures, through our supply chain. $35 million. That is some real hard reason to pursue so socially responsible and both sustainable measures and proof that they can help your bottom line. Well, most companies, uh, when you look at your sourcing, you know, at least with us, you know, especially in food, you know, half your cost is into these raw materials that are so dependent on uh, land, forests, water, energy, create waste. So when you put a real focus in on it and make it a real discipline, like sometimes I get questions like, why wouldn't you be doing this already before? Well, if you don't put a focus on it, if you don't actually require it or measure it, you're not going to be working on it. So, you know, that's why it's a, a part of doing business for McDonald's and why it's good for business too. You keep referencing these 2020 goals that you have, which are both incredibly lofty and very admirable. And I know that you spearheaded setting these within the organization. And so as an entrepreneur, how do you navigate those conversations and kind of what challenges do you have getting others in the organization as big as McDonald's to get on board and commit to these? It takes, you know, a couple hundred people to create those goals in a company like McDonald's. So in, in me leading sustainability, it's my job was to influence others. So really, my job was sort of like a the leader of an orchestra, right? You got a conductor that does not play an instrument. So the real people that are making the change is the orchestra, which are all the, the, the McDonald's leaders. And so I'm a conductor really in charge and have no authority at all. Because, you know, sustainability is meant to be part of doing business. So my job is to figure out how to leverage that talent and to influence them. I do believe for leaders today 
many of them fall short on this idea of the art of influence. And I do believe at the core of it all is that more time needs to be spent thinking about the idea of how I leverage relationships, develop personal relationships, develop trust. Because at the end of the day, you could have the greatest idea in the world and it's going to go nowhere in an organization. And I think a lot of the uh, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, they, they're, they're so passionate about what they believe in that they believe the idea itself should sell to other people. No, 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 no. People are busy. People are not predisposed to accept what it is. Change is always difficult, whether in sustainability or anything else. So the real task is to uh, build up relationships and, and build your credibility so that when a time comes when you're advocating thing, something, people will listen to you and you'll get time on their busy calendars and they'll start considering the things that you're recommending. This idea of influence, I'm just obsessed with personally this year. This was the first time I ever read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. It's so huge and it's so often overlooked. And it really, as you're describing what you're able to do as an entrepreneur, that seems like it's one of your biggest assets that you have is the idea of to influence people to make meaningful relationships and actually create change. I love that. Yeah, I think too many people, you know, stop at being uh, an expert or knowing something about something. Uh, that's half, half the formula is having the credibility that you are a subject matter expert, like you know your stuff. But the other half is too often ignored. The thing is, you got to be yourself as well. I think sometimes people uh, maybe try too hard, you know, or can, you know, fake it, you know. I want people to be who they are. You know, every leader, there's no one formula for being a leader and how to influence people. But it does begin with bringing your uh, real self to your jobs. And to be totally honest with technology now, where you can have massive amount of communication without ever actually interacting with somebody, for especially my generation and millennials, it seems like fostering these relationships and learning the art of influence is really going to be one of our biggest challenges to creating this wide-scale change. I agree. I'm, I'm kind of curious uh, what it's going to be like in the future. Uh, I do believe the people that are going to be the leaders will be the ones that can take this art of influencing to a high level. And there's also something to be said that if you're in an organization right now and you're very passionate about these changes, you don't necessarily have to know all the answers. You leverage partnerships to really know and understand the issues and to be able to make those right choices. So for these entrepreneurs that are really looking to kind of navigate some issues that are very near and dear to their heart, what kind of advice do you have? And what kind of conversations do they need to have with upper levels to get these issues kind of noticed and see that they can be good for business? I'd like to focus in on the art of listening. Uh, and, and uh, I can't tell you how I think that's so important. I think people in the sustainability field are so passionate <laughs> about what they want to advance that they are trying to push their own agenda too much. So I say don't do that at all. Uh, and, and the way to do it in an organization is totally, 100%, put yourself in the other person's seat and mind. I'm trying to advance animal welfare in a company. I wouldn't be setting up meetings to convince people about the animal welfare program I had in mind. I would get to know that person. I would develop a relationship. I would find out and do research like what's important to them. How do they think? How, what I'm trying to advance, what is it that they are doing that would make them want to work on what I want them to work on? It's working totally in reverse. So do not be thinking about how you push your own ideas. Think about how you can connect and listen to the people you're trying to influence. And you will see a vast difference in how you behave. What incredible marching orders. Those are just so powerful. And I really hope all the listeners out there 
can take and apply that to wherever they are today and leverage it to create what they define as meaningful change. Today's Rapid Fire is brought to you by Backcountry.com. Headed on an adventure? Make sure you have the best gear ready to go. Check out positiveimpactpodcast.com slash backcountry for all of our recommendations. Life is a balance of work, passion, and adventure. Can you tell us about a recent adventure or excursion that you've gone on? I actually, my mind went to thinking about the, the, the spiritual adventure, to be honest with you. I love reading. And uh, to me, when I sink into a, a book, I'm going on an adventure. So uh, anytime I read, a, I read the, the Boys in the Boat. Have you read that book yet? I have not. Uh, read it. You know, so it's, it's the adventure of people striving to uh, rowers in the University of Washington try to go into the Olympics in 1936. What an adventure that, that is, you know, to, to, get, to get into the minds of somebody else. I just read the autobiography of uh, Winston Churchill. So I went on this adventure of trying to learn about how he led Great Britain and the world, you know, out of World War II. And I, I believe he was the greatest leader of the 20th century. And so to get into his mind as to how he did that is a, a great adventure. I actually get most of my experiences through reading and trying to put myself into a different world. I love the uniqueness of that answer. I mean, that's not something that I've ever gotten when I've answered this. And, but it's so true. As a child, I always loved to disappear into books and go on different adventures no matter what day of the week or what trip well, I had planned. The latest adventure I just went through, I just finished reading The Martian. And it's going to become a movie with that, Matt Damon this uh, fall. But here you go through this book of going to Mars and trying to survive being on Mars. It's like, what an adventure that, that is. What has been one of the most exciting, interesting, or memorable trips that you've ever taken? I went through the Amazon uh, for nine days with uh, Greenpeace and uh, McDonald's. So there's like eight of us, half of us from Greenpeace, half from McDonald's. Uh, the short story on that is uh, they had a campaign against us that there was too much soy being grown in Brazil that was impacting deforestation in the Amazon. And soy is used as chicken feed exported to Europe. It's a big, big, long story. Uh, I'm very proud of what we did. We ended up, uh, we ended up uh, creating a moratorium by getting other retailers to join with us to stop those practices. But part of the process, I always like to see, feel, and touch what the issue is. So I wanted to get to the Amazon. And so when, when I went there, nine days in the Amazon, I mean, I can't describe how wonderful it is. First of all, 80%, the Amazon itself is bigger than Western Europe. Ooh. So you, you can't see the, you know, the Amazon. We, I flew in this Greenpeace airplane, by the way. We were in this little airplane of Greenpeaces, and we flew for three hours west from Manassas, which is the center of the, 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 the Amazon area. For most of the, for those three hours, we were flying very low. We were in nature as it was 5,000 years ago because there wasn't one house, one wire, one road. There wasn't one thing. It was in its natural state. And we landed in an area that was pristine and in its natural state. And by the way, the Amazon is still about 80% still the Amazon. And this, this idea to kind of have, have economic development at the same time is an interesting issue because we also saw on our airplane ride the other part of the Amazon that's getting deforested and get to see these large tracks and roads being built. And Anyway, just to, to experience kind of nature at its most uh, pristine and, and uh, original form and to be with Greenpeace, if you were a fly in the wall, I am convinced you're not going to know who was from Greenpeace and who was from McDonald's. And I, I feel like we're all, once you agree on something, we're, we're, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same doing things together. What incredible marching orders when you described how you wanted to see, feel, and touch what the issue actually was. To all those tech dependents out there, really go out into the world and understand and see the complexity of issues and see that they're multifaceted. I'm just blown away with that. What was your, one of your biggest successes in your role with McDonald's? Biggest success at a macro level was 
integrating sustainability into supply chain, getting our supply chain uh, leadership to realize that it's part of doing business, and then seeing the ripple effects that we've talked about, the ripple effects on packaging, food, fish, beef, you know, our vast supplier network now talk about sustainability as if it's quality and cost. Just, I, I see that transformation happen over the last 10 years. I'm like, wow, this is really, the fact that I was part of that, you know, one, one part of the cog of that is a really good feeling. What was your best failure? <laughs> well, I have no doubt, you know, the, the, well, the, the biggest failure in my mind, in my work, at McDonald's was coming up with ideas that would sell in the company to connect with the consumer. I, I really feel connecting with the consumer on issues of uh, responsibility and sustainability is the holy grail. I don't think we're there yet, and I never did succeed at that in my time, and, and I was trying different ways to come up with ways to do that. And uh, I'm disappointed that I never found the right way or right way to influence connecting with the consumer. I'm convinced that McDonald's will do that and other companies will do it in the future, but uh, to be determined yet. I'm looking forward to that. What book do you recommend to other socially minded individuals, particularly this term intrapreneur? I read a book early this summer that I still can't uh, put out of my mind. It's called The Road to Character. And it's by David Brooks. Uh, it should be subtitled "The Road to uh, Leadership." That's how it should be titled. He he takes a look at about ten or twelve interesting historical characters, and he describes how they went from you know, out of luck, bad circumstances, being unhappy, being unsuccessful, to leading a life of being a big change maker. And I think that's a key uh, thought for people to read about. This stuff is not easy. This stuff takes so much passion and perseverance. I think some people expect overnight success. You might, you might find that somewhere, but overall, that book shows you that it's a, it's a long journey, but it can happen if you stick with it. I have not heard of that one, but it is now on my list. What advice do you have for recent grads looking for meaningful careers? Well, you know what? When I, when I uh, interview uh, recent grads, when I interview for, I, they don't know that I'm searching for this, but I'm searching for what made them tick when they were younger. Like, what did they do when they were, you know, 10, 12, 15, 18 years old? I feel like what you were doing at that time, I bet you that you were doing pretend broadcasts at the age of 14, were you? I was probably singing on the swing set a little bit more than I'd like to admit. I don't know. My, my, my advice is uh, somewhere along the line, find out, reflect on what is the, what's, what's your interest. I, I really admired people that had an interest in something and really wanted to delve into it and make it part of their career. Uh, I think uh, find an organization that fits your uh, values. And then also listen to people. Uh, one of the things I've noticed about younger people is that uh, many of them are not open to feedback. And if I had to start my career over again, I would really be uh, open to feedback in a much more open way. I was at a major university uh, recently reviewing cases that they would do, and I came in to help create the case and then judge the case. And I feel like I'm always trying to teach people, right? I'm always trying to pass things on. So, you know, I would always give them advice of what I liked and things that they could improve upon. And I could tell when I was giving them the crit critical feedback about half the people kind of shut down. They didn't want to hear it. You know, you're not going to go anywhere unless you are open to that feedback. You should be just, you should be like, wanting feedback. You should be wanting to hear what you're not all that good at as a very positive thing. Those are great sentiments, especially for not only recent grads, but also people in their career who are looking to grow into the type of career that they can be very proud of and just passionate about. 
my next question is what role has mentorship played in both your success and your growth in McDonald's and just in your life? Well, it's funny, uh, over the years, I, I looked at really probably that's my number one thing that I enjoyed most. I enjoyed being a mentor to others. So uh, I would say that if I had success at McDonald's, it was success based on the idea that I wanted to help people be successful. Nothing gave me more. I had pleasure with two things in my career. One is making an impact, some of the things that we described, right? When you make changes in packaging and animal welfare and soy and beef. Hey, that's a wonderful feeling that you're making an impact in the world. But equal to that, and even surpassing it, would be seeing the people that I work with become sustainability champions. And then like seeing them make that change and, and helping to mentor them and give them advice, that gave me a very, very, it made me a complete person and made me very happy. Incredible. Was there a mantra or a motto that really guided your work as you were delving into all these sustainable and social causes? Yes, the three P's. I, I've always thought of my work as beginning with passion and then just working through patience and persistence with these three P's. I mean, if you think about it, they're all contradictory. If you have passion, how could you be patient? If you're patient, how could you dare be persistent? And believe it or not, in leadership, you have to exercise all of them at the same time, which almost makes you schizophrenic. But you have to lever each one of them at the right time, leverage the passion, but don't overdo it. Be persistent. Every day when I went into work, it's like, be persistent. How am I going to move the chess pieces here and there to make advances? Uh, I'm going to be patient because it's not my agenda. I'm working at the pace of other people. So it's an interesting mixture of those three Ps. Bob, thank you so much for your time today. This has been just an absolutely incredible conversation, and I can't get over what an impact that you made at your role with McDonald's. So my two final kind of touching off points is, First, if people are passionate about these environmental or sustainable issues, what can they do or kind of who can they get in contact to leverage what they're doing to make a big difference? Get involved, you know, get, get involved. A lot of people, I would interview people that said they had a passion for sustainability. And I look at their resume, I go, well, where is it? You know, I mean, show me what you're getting involved with. Uh, there's a lot of organizations that uh, net impact is one. Uh, young professionals can get involved in local chapters. Get involved with an NGO, volunteer. I mean, show, show me or whoever. If, you're, if you really are passionate about it, translate the passion into actually raising your hand, getting involved, creating a network, uh, going to events in your field to learn, to listen, meet with other leaders. And by the way, don't be bashful about introducing yourself the leaders and connecting with them, you'll find that most of them want to carry on what they have and help you out. And then how do people learn more about what McDonald's is doing in this space and really educate them on these issues that McDonald's has created incredible change on? Yeah, well, hey, you know, maybe a lot of people read Fast Food Nation or seen the movie Supersize Me. Uh, so yeah, hey, give us a chance, you know, give McDonald's a chance. Uh, Take a look at our website, you know, take a look at uh, mcdonalds.com and uh, about McDonald's. You'll, you'll find our sustainability report and just give us a chance, you know, give, give McDonald's a chance to take a look at the, the, the real work that we're uh, doing and, and the metrics. We're more transparent than ever. You know, we let the facts speak for themselves. And I think if you were to take a deep look and find out the real metrics that we're reporting on, we're uh, a lot better than a lot of people think. Bob, thank you so much. You're welcome. Pleasure talking to you. You guys, I am so inspired by the long-lasting ripple effects that Bob created in a global organization as large as McDonald's. What a phenomenal mover and shaker. 
For all of the resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our show notes page at positiveimpactpodcast.com slash episode six. We're also going to be giving you a link to a free audio download thanks to Audible. And you can choose from one of the many different books that Bob mentioned today, including The Road to Character, the biography of Winston Churchill, or even The Martian. Until next time, keep doing your part to make the world a better place. Thank you.